Welcome to the podcast of Selmore Baptist Church in Ozark, Missouri. To learn more about our church, please visit selmorebaptist.com. And now, here's the sermon. All right, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 19. And we do continue to make our way this morning through the book of Hebrews in a sermon series entitled, Jesus is Better. We've been at this since January, and we're hoping we can get this wrapped up before the end of this year. But as we pick up reading today, we happen to be smack dab in the middle of a section of Hebrews that is highly theological, highly doctrinal um, in nature. And if you were here last week, you know what I mean when I say that. Now, on one hand, I suppose you could say that all the Bible is theological and (laughs) doctrinal in nature, right? Um, That's certainly true, but the fact of the matter is that some texts lend themselves very nicely to practical teaching and very pretty outlines, whereas other texts, such as today's, are more doctrinal in nature, more deep. In such texts, the application to our daily lives may be less obvious But the underlying truths contained therein are foundational and they are vital to our understanding of God and to our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't think it's unfair to say that one sign of a spiritually mature individual and one sign of a spiritually mature church is that we have an appreciation for doctrinal preaching. So don't get me wrong, every good sermon should have application. We're not here merely to listen to an academic lecture. But as we grow in the Lord, we should welcome the opportunity to drink deeply from the word of God and to strive to comprehend what is the width and length and depth and height of the love of Christ, which passes all knowledge. So I hope you're ready once again this morning to be stretched spiritually and to apply your heart and your mind to this important section of verses from Hebrews chapter 7. In way of review from last week, in verses 1 through 10, the writer of Hebrews sets out to show that the Old Testament figure of Melchizedek was a preview of Jesus Christ. Why does he do this? Well, if you recall, there seems to be perhaps some concern by the author that some of his readers are thinking about returning to the old covenant or at least flirting with it somewhat. They're wanting to return to the use of human priests from the tribe of Levi. And so the writer of Hebrews uses the example of Melchizedek to make the case that they're not thinking correctly. If that's the way they want to go, they're going in the wrong direction. And I won't preach last Sunday's sermon again, but his logic is basically this. If Melchizedek, going back to Genesis 14, if Melchizedek represented Jesus in that passage and Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, then it follows that Jesus himself is greater than the descendants of Abraham and specifically the Levites. And if Jesus is greater than the Levites, then why in the world would the people look to the Levites as their priests, as the ones to connect them to God? They should be looking to Jesus because he's superior to them and he's the only one who can truly connect them to God, amen? So in today's text, the writer of Hebrews will continue to drive home this point that Jesus is a better priest than the Levites. And in fact, he'll make the case that a new kind of priest was necessary in order to usher in a new and better covenant. The bottom line is that once again this morning, we will see Jesus is 
better. Let's begin making our way through the text. And as we go along, we're going to identify five key truths proving Jesus' superiority over the Levites. So let's begin by reading chapter 7 and verse 11. It says, Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? All right, here's truth number one. Here's how we summarize that verse. If the Levites were perfect priests, there would be no need for God to raise up another priest from outside their tribe. As many of us know, the Old Testament nation of Israel was comprised of 12 tribes. God commanded in the law that the priests of Israel could only come from the tribe of Levi. This is where we get the term in verse 11, Levitical priesthood. Levitical from the root word Levi. It was up to the Levites to carry out all the duties of the priests, to erect and prepare the tabernacle, to lead the people in worship, to make the animal sacrifices. As one commentator points out, the Levitical priesthood was the backbone of Jewish society and was a major feature of God's covenant with Israel. And so you can understand why these Hebrew Christians were a little tempted to go back to it. It was all they knew. It wasn't just their religion. It was their entire culture and had been for thousands of years. Some of them may have even thought, this is the perfect system. We've used this for thousands of years. There can't be a better system than this. And let that be a caution to us. It's always dangerous when we allow our culture and our traditions to dictate to us rather than to listen to what God has commanded us to do and to get those things confused and intertwined with one another. And this is the issue that the writer of Hebrews raises in verse 11. He basically says this, look, if the Levitical priesthood was so perfect, why did God raise up another priest in the order of Melchizedek who wasn't even a Levite? Melchizedek, as you may recall from last week, came along hundreds of years before the Levites even existed. He was a completely different kind of priest than them. If you remember, he had no lineage, no beginning, no end. There was something very special, very unique about him. And Jesus, it says, was this same kind of priest. Jesus was not a priest like the Levites in the order of Aaron, the very first high priest, but rather Jesus was a priest in the order of Melchizedek meaning that he was unique, he was special, without beginning, without end, supernatural. The author's point is very simple here. If God thought the Levitical priesthood was perfect, if he had intended the Levitical priesthood to continue, he would have chosen a Levite to be the mediator between us and God, but that's not what he did. Instead, God ordained Jesus to be our high priest. He ordained Jesus to be the one to mediate between us and him through his sacrifice on the cross. And again, if you know Jesus's background, he was not from the tribe of Levi. He was from the tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, as it says. So the bottom line is that Jesus is a better priest than the Levites. Only he can connect us to God. In fact, Jesus himself said, no man comes to the father 
but by me. Now, you and I sitting in this room today are not tempted to go find us some Levites and make human priests out of them. Um, We don't identify with the Hebrews in that regard. However, you don't have to look around the world too much to understand that people are trying to get to God through any number of ways and through any number of people. It may not be Levites, but it may be Muhammad, or it may be Buddha, or Gandhi, or Joseph Smith, or the Pope, or Oprah. God forbid, Pastor Josh. It's not, it's not going to get you there. None of those people are going to help you. None of those people can stand in the gap between you and God and mediate. None of those people can get you access to the Heavenly Father. None of those people are qualified to be your high priest. That role belongs to Jesus, and it belongs to Jesus alone. He is the only one who can bring man and God together. All right, let's keep reading verses 12 through 14. It says, For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. Truth number two. By being a priest from outside the tribe of Levi, Jesus radically changed the entire system. All right, here's the deal. Here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's telling his readers, you need to understand something. When God took Jesus, who was not a Levite, and it emphasizes that in verses 13 and 14, when God took Jesus, who was not a Levite, and made him the ultimate high priest, he wasn't just tweaking the old system. He was completely blowing it up. He was completely starting something completely new. This is what verse 12 means when it says, if the priesthood has changed, then by necessity the whole law The whole system is changed. MacArthur puts it this way. The Levitical system was replaced by a new priest offering a new sacrifice under a new covenant. No longer would man be justified in the sight of God by sacrificing animals repeatedly as payment for sin. But now man would be justified in the sight of God by putting his faith in the once and for all perfect payment for sin, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, a sacrifice that we will remember and honor here in a few moments as we take the Lord's Supper. And so in this passage, the author of Hebrews wants to make very clear to his readers, you can't have one foot in the old system and one foot in the new, right? You can't claim to put your trust in Jesus on one hand and then be taking animals to the Levitical priests on the other hand. You have to choose. Who are you putting your trust in? And I think there's a really important application here for us. Sometimes we make a commitment to follow Jesus, but we want to keep one foot or even just one toe in our old life. We want to keep doing things the old way, and it just doesn't work like that. When it comes to following Jesus, it's got to be all or nothing, Jesus did not come to tweak your life. He did not come to be added into the mix of everything else that you've already got going on, just one more thing. 
Jesus came to radically change the system and to radically change your life. And he demands to be your Lord and he demands to be your king. And so we, like the Hebrews, must decide, am I going to fully trust Jesus and follow him? Or am I going to hang on to the old life, to the old ways, and miss out on the salvation that only Jesus can provide? And I would say to you this morning, choose wisely. Now, verses 15 through 17, let's keep reading. He continues and he says, And it is yet far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest, who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are, quoting from Psalm 110 here, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Here's truth number three. Jesus's priesthood is better than the Levites because Jesus is not a priest by the authority of the law, but by the power of his resurrection. Thus, he is a priest forever. Verse 15 states that it is evident, it's evident that Jesus is a better priest than the Levites. That is to say that he is a different kind of priest, a special kind of priest. Indeed, a priest in the likeness of the Old Testament figure Melchizedek. In what way was Jesus like Melchizedek? Well, like Melchizedek, Jesus was not made a priest simply because the Old Testament law said he was. For instance, if you were a Levite male, your life was to be spent in service to the God, or excuse me, in service to God and to the tabernacle. That's what the law said. You really had no choice in the matter. You were drafted. That was your job. But what he's saying here is that Jesus wasn't drafted into service in that way. He wasn't made a priest in that way simply because of his lineage, simply because he happened to be a Levite. No, Jesus was made a priest by virtue of something far more significant. Verse 16 says that Jesus was made a priest by the power of an endless life. This is a reference to the greatest event in the history of the world, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As we know, the resurrection of Christ is the very foundation of all that we believe as Christians. Of course, prior to the resurrection, we believe that Jesus was crucified as the atonement for our sins, that he served as our substitute on the cross, as our propitiation, bearing the awesome wrath of a holy God. He paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt that we could not pay. But the story doesn't end there, right? Because on the third day, the Bible teaches us that Jesus came back from the dead, that he walked out of the tomb, defeating sin and death forever and proving in the process that he truly is the Messiah, the son of God. But also according to verse 16, in his resurrection, establishing himself as our great high priest forever and ever. By the power of his endless life, Jesus positioned himself as the sole mediator between God and man so that no man can come to the Father but by him. And here's the really good news. Romans 10 says, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. Do you believe that today? If you've never called on the risen Jesus, 
as your Savior and as your Lord, I pray you'll do so this very day. Because Jesus' priesthood comes by virtue of his resurrection, by virtue of his endless life, and not by virtue of the law, which is merely temporary, he is a priest forever. That's what verse 17 tells us. Again, quoting from Psalm 110, that Jesus is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, forever, that's a word we've thrown around a few times this morning. Forever is a long time. Forever is hard for us to wrap our minds around. But the point is that Jesus will never stop being our high priest. For as long as we walk this earth and then into heaven and into eternity, Jesus will always be the one who unites us to our heavenly father. Revelation 5 says the elders and living creatures in heaven sing a special song to Jesus. And the lyrics go like this. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood from every tribe, tongue, and people and nation. Jesus is our great high priest forever and ever. Now, at this point, the emphasis of our passage shifts just a little bit from Jesus himself to the new covenant that he establishes with us. Remember that we said earlier that a new priest means a whole new system. It means a whole new covenant by which we relate to God. And this is what the writer of Hebrews now wants to emphasize to his readers. So let's continue reading. Verse 18 is next. It says, For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. Here's truth number four. Because Jesus is a better priest than the Levites, his covenant is better than the old. Verse 18 says that there is an annulling of the former commandment. What is the former commandment to which that verse is referring? Well, it's referring to the law of the Old Testament. The law that God gave to Moses that we read about in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. In other words, with the coming of Jesus and the changeover to him as our high priest, there is a sense in which the Old Testament law has been annulled. Now, the word annul is a strong word. And if you look up its definition, it means to declare something as invalid, to declare something as null and void. And get this, the author even goes on in verse 18 to declare the law as weak and unprofitable. Now, I want to be very clear and and very careful here because if we get this wrong, it can lead us in a very dangerous direction. When the writer of Hebrews declares the Old Testament law to be annulled, to be weak, to be unprofitable, he is not saying that it no longer has value. He is not saying that it no longer has benefit to the Christian, that we should just discard it or throw it away. What he is saying is that specifically, in terms of salvation, in terms of our justification before God, the law cannot save us. In that way and in that way alone, the law is weak and it is ineffective. Because here's the truth. No matter how closely we follow God's law, no matter how good of a person we are, no matter how many of the rules that we keep, we are human and we are sinners 
both by choice and by nature, and we will always fall short. No one can follow God's law to perfection, and to attempt to do so will crush you under the weight of the law with its never-ending burdens and expectations. That's why under the old covenant, they had to sacrifice animals again and again and again because they messed up again and again and again. But Jesus offers a better way. He offers us a new and better covenant. And so let's read about that in our final verse, verse 19. It says, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Truth number five, the new covenant established by Jesus brings in a better hope and allows us to draw near to God. That verse we just read says that the law made nothing perfect. In other words, the law has no power to make us sinless and spotless before God on the inside. Rather, the law by its very nature is primarily about regulating outward behavior, which is not bad. Our outward behavior matters. Holiness matters. We need to be careful that we don't fall into an overly simplistic and and false dichotomy that law is bad and grace is good. No, the law is good too. The law was given by God. It, It had and continues to have an important purpose. But the main point here is that the law is powerless to perfect or cleanse our heart. Thankfully, Jesus offers a better way, a better hope, as it says in verse 19, through which we can draw near to God. And here is that better way. Here is that better hope defined. When by God's grace, we turn from our sin and put our faith in Jesus, His sacrifice on the cross covers our sins once and for all so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see all of our sins and all of our shortcomings. He sees only the perfection, the holiness, the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. That's why the new covenant is better than the law. It's so much better. But again, we don't discard the law. We honor the law. We cherish it. Without the law, we would know little of God's character. Without the law, we would never be able to grasp the holiness of God. Without the law, we would never comprehend how far that we fall short of his glory and how desperately we need a savior. So we don't discard the Old Testament law. May it never be. The Old Testament is the inerrant inspired word of God with great value for us today. But we do recognize that when it comes to our salvation, the law is insufficient. We can only be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not by keeping the law. And in this way, the new covenant is better than the old. And we'll talk more on that and build more on that in next week's sermon. As we near our time of response today, as as I said at the beginning of the message The content we've been looking at the last couple weeks is 
very theological, very doctrinal in nature. And it's good for us to wrestle with passages such as this and, and try to wrap our minds around these things. But the fact of the matter is that even with all the complexities of a text like this, the bottom line is still very simple. And really, it's still very clear. We need Jesus. We need him desperately. We have no hope without him. He is the only mediator between God and man. He is the only way to the Father. He is the only way to heaven. And so I would just simply ask you this morning, do you know him? Have you repented of your sin and believed on Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Romans chapter 10 and verse 13 says, Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I hope that you're not trusting in your own righteousness to get you to heaven. That will never work. You can never follow the law well enough. I hope you're not trusting in any other person or belief system to get you to heaven because that will never work either. Only Jesus can bring us into a saving relationship with the Father. But it's up to you to respond. You can call on him right now. From your heart, you can say, Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe in your death on the cross in my place for my sin. I believe in your resurrection. And I now turn from my sin and commit my life to you. Jesus, please save me. And if you call on his name, he will save you right here and right now. If you're ready to follow Jesus, we want to give you an opportunity to make that public here in just a moment. We're going to have a song of response. I'm going to be standing here on the floor at the front of the room. And if you're here today and the Holy Spirit's been convicting you that, you know what? It's time to follow Christ. It's time to become a Christian. We would invite you to walk to the front of the room, take me by the hand and say, Josh, I'm ready. I'm ready to follow Christ and I want to let everybody know that I'm a follower of Jesus. And I'd be happy to stand with you, to pray with you, and to help you make that public commitment of your life. If you're here today and you need to follow the Lord in baptism, that's something that you've been putting off, that you've not followed through on yet. Or if you're here and you need to join the church, God's been laying on your heart that it's time to officially, formally unite with this body of believers. You can make that public decision today as well. Let's stand at this time. I'm going to ask Cliff, our musicians, if they would, to come. And we're going to have our song of response.